This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 291st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is Lulu Wong the writer and director of the deeply personal dramedy The Farewell, which is one of the most critically acclaimed films of 2019 and the 2019 film with the highest per theater average gross. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 36-year-old and I discussed the move from China to America that her parents and she made back when she was just six, the close relationship she has always had with her grandmother, Nai Nai, and how it was tested in real life by the circumstances depicted in The Farewell, how her own career evolved from being fired from her job as a producer's intern on the set of 2007's Pineapple Express to doing coverage for one of the leading producers of Chinese American films to being ready to quit filmmaking in favor of radio work after struggling to get The Farewell made as a film but telling the same story on This American Life, how things finally came together with The Farewell and what she has made of and hopes the industry takes away from its tremendous reception, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by a fine journalist and friend of mine who, earlier this month, wrapped her two-year term as president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the group behind the Golden Globes. Maher Tatna, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So you have quite a life story. How did you go, first of all, from India to Brandeis University, where I also went. And I guess let's just start there. I wanted to get out of India. <laughs> I decided I didn't want my mother's life. So I applied secretly from my parents to a bunch of universities. I did my SATs. And Brandeis was the one that paid everything. Wow. There were others that, um, you know, I remember Wellesley College offered me a $1,000 grant, and I thought, I'll never be able to pay that back. $1,000 is a lot of money to an Indian, you know, who had pocket money of 30 rupees a month. Well, so, I was going to ask, like, how did you grow up in India? Well, we were, I guess, a middle-class family. You know, we always had what we needed, but no luxuries. There were seven of us living in... A three-bedroom apartment with one bathroom. Wow. My mom and dad, my sister and brother, me, my grandmother, and her sister. So I'm guessing, maybe maybe this is an incorrect assumption, but I would guess there probably wasn't much money for movies or things like that? No. I mentioned I had 30 rupees a month as pocket money. Yes. I don't know what that translates to, but it's probably a dollar or two. Ah, okay. And I had to pay all my bus fares out of that. So not a lot of money. Not a lot. So you get this opportunity to come to Brandeis, all expenses paid. And what did you decide you wanted to... Well, before I ask you what you studied there, that's a big thing. You came to the U.S. not knowing anybody? 
I had a host family. They were assigned to me and they were wonderful and I'm still in touch with them. The funny thing is they actually reconnected with me after they saw me on the stage of the Golden Globes. Oh so that was really nice, yeah. which reminds me I have to get back in touch with them again. Yes, yes. So when you're at Brandeis, though, having not, I, I'm assuming, I, I know there's no, there was no film studies major. You know, I'm wondering what you were studying and what you thought your future after Brandeis would be. I was an economic student. I transferred my credits, so I went in as a sophomore, and I was in a terrible hurry to graduate. <laughs> but I hung around the theater department all the time. Spingled. And yeah, that's right. <laughs> and if I had done four years, I would have graduated with a double major. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to get the hell out and yeah. start my life. And so you had your degree was in theater? Was in economics. In economics. Yeah. And at that point when you got your, when you left Waltham, what did you think the rest of your life was going to entail? I wanted to go to drama school. I figured that I pleased my parents. I got the <laughs> degree in economics. Now I was going to do what pleased me. Yeah. So I moved to New York and I checked out, I don't know if I should say this, but what the <laughs> hell, the school with the cheapest fees. Okay. And that happened to be the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Yeah. And... It, it was good enough for Robert Redford, yes. so it was good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to school during the day and waited tables at night. And I have to say, I think that was one of the happiest times of my life. Really? Yes. Why, why do you think? I don't know. You kind of build a family. When you're in drama school, you do scenes with the people in your class. You bond in a way. You cry together. You laugh together. I'm still in touch with a few people. That's great. And I'm guessing it was around that time that you probably started to fall in love with movies? It was theater at that time. Okay. That was everything. Mm -hmm. And then I started to go out on auditions. And, you know, you pound pavements like everybody else. But back then, there were not too many people that looked like me on stage, in the theater, in television. And I did sporadically get work. Mm -hmm. um, on soap operas, you know, commercials, a few here and there. Mm. But it was never enough to make a living. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would move to L.A. and try there. And it was the same story. You know, I would get something. You know, I did this amazing um, commercial telephone company. Oh, God, what was it? With Candace Bergen. <laughs> it's on YouTube. Yeah? Oh, that's a trick. <laughs> and that, that earned me some $30,000 over wow. a couple of years. Well, okay, over a couple of years, yeah. I think that was the most money I ever made yeah. in acting. Yeah. Even though I get tiny residuals <laughs> to this day, <laughs> to probably this day. less than the cost of the stamp on the, <laughs> on the letter. So at a certain point, I'm guessing you decide to drop being in front of audiences and go into the audience and write about other people? Is that... That's right. I figured I wanted to be a part of the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And if I couldn't act, then I thought I would write about it. Mm -hmm. So I had a connection with an editor in Singapore, mm -hmm. and he took me on, and I was his Hollywood correspondent. And then I joined the Motion Picture Association. I met my sponsors for the HFPA, Ahmed Latif and Noel D'Souza. Well, let's pause for a second. Okay. And 
let me just ask you to explain for listeners who may not know, what is the HFPA and how does it operate? All right. We are a trade association of journalists. That is our day job. Every day, pretty much, or at least several times a week, we go to screenings, we have press conferences with every movie and television show and foreign film that is opening. And then we write about it. All of us write for foreign publications. We are the Hollywood Foreign Press. And then we throw this little show at the end of the year (laughs) called the Golden Globes. For 76 years. We just had our 76th, for which we got an Emmy nomination. Congratulations, yes. Do you personally, you must, why not? Come on. Well, okay, so that's what the, that's what the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is. And as Meryl Streep joked when she got her Life Achievement Award, the Cecil B. DeMille Award a few years ago, those are pretty much everything that Donald Trump dislikes, <laughs> Hollywood, foreigners, and the press. So there you uh, go. <laughs> I think the key to understand here is that there are Americans, many Americans in the Hollywood Foreign Press. What it means is that you work for a outlet that is not in the U.S., but the journalist who's the member is based in and around Los Angeles, right? That's right. And what are the requirements? How does one become a member, and what does one have to do to stay a member? Well, you have to be accredited with the Motion Picture Association. You need to have two sponsors who will bring you in. And then every year you must be accredited. You have to present a certain number of clippings. Mm -hmm. Then there are other rules like you have to, you know, attend a certain number of membership meetings. And what year did you join? 2002. Okay, so by the time you had joined, the HFPA and the Golden Globes had a long and kind of interesting history that I think is important to just touch upon because we can illustrate how far things have come. So for a lot of people, I guess maybe the starting in the 70s or 80s, there were some questions about the Globes. There was this whole Pia Zadora thing where she was the best newcomer over some over some people who people assumed would, would be more likely to win. There were some weird nights where two or three major awards tied and people wondered if that was even legitimate. And actually for a few years, the Golden Globes were not allowed on the air, right? Because there was, there were some quite, sorry, I think the quiz show legacy where if, you know, if something's presented as a competition that's legitimate, but it's, there's questions about it, you can't be on the air. Well, I think one of the networks didn't renew our contract, and that's when Dick Clark stepped in. Okay. And that began our long association with them. Dick Clark Productions, yeah. Right. And so then we were back on the air. So really in the last, in this century, the since the turn of the century, things have been increasingly, in my you know, view, getting better and better to the point where your presidency these last two years have been probably the least problematic of uh, of any that I can recall. And I want to just ask you wh- why that is. What are some of the things that the organizations become more conscious about and try to do differently or better or whatever? Well, as we've grown and, you know, we are a lot in the public eye and I was very conscious of that. Mm-hmm. And I made sure that, you know, we did things in a very professional way. And I'm not saying that, you know, I was the first one to do it. Obviously, the presidents that went before me all did their part. And I was just trying to make sure that we stayed on that track. And hopefully I succeeded. Uh, Well, I want to ask about some of the interesting innovations and things that 
happened during your term. For many years, there's been the Cecil B. DeMille Award recognizing life achievement, career achievement on the film side of things. But one of the cool things about the Golden Globes is you recognize both film and television. And so it was a little odd that there wasn't a television equivalent. What did you do to change that? Well, we established the Carol Burnett Award. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I'm proudest of. Um, We were beside ourselves when she agreed. And in any case, I just did a podcast with her. Ah, that's so exciting. It's on iTunes and the HFPA website, goldenglobes.com, if anybody wants to check it out. But um, it was a no-brainer for us. And we wanted to have the symmetry of naming it after the first recipient. Yes. And it's going to be every year. And it was the highlight of our show yeah, last time. Yeah, it was time. terrific. Steve Carell presenting she to her. She is so amazing. Yes. Well, you mentioned the next thing that I want to ask you about, which came about during your term, which I think was really smart. And that is the podcast that you guys now do, HFPA in Conversation. And the thing that this does, every episode is an HFPA member interviewing someone who's in the running for something, sort of like on this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think it really helps to humanize the HFPA. People have always sort of been unclear about who are you guys, because unlike the Academy, which has household names and whatever, not necessarily all or many members of the HFPA are known to the general public, and they've maybe heard some of the history that we referred to, which is now quite in the past, but they just don't know who are these people. And so here's a way to see that they are actually journalists that are working and really do well-researched, good interviews. And I just thought it was a a really smart idea. Do you feel that that's serving that purpose? Absolutely. And I have to give the credit to our member, Kirpi Wimonen Ballesteros, who's brainchild this is and she's the one (laughs) and she's the one who runs the program and members step up and do the interviews anybody that is you know opening a project or anybody interesting Mm -hmm. um and it gives the world like you said a chance to see that we are real journalists and And one fun fact i always love to try to find a way to throw in when when writing about the golden globes there is one person Ever, I believe, who is both a member of the HFPA and the Academy, and that is Lisa Liu, who people know as the grandmother in Crazy Rich Asian. She's been around for acting for many years, but she is the only person who would overlap between the two groups because she's also a journalist on top of being an actress, right? That's right. So let's go on to the next thing that, that really was important during your presidency, and that is a new contract with NBC which has aired the Golden Globes for many years. Why was that a big deal? Well, it is a really good contract. (laughs) It secures our future for the next eight years, which is the length of the contract. And it was one of the reasons that I wanted to be president Mm -hmm. when I did, because I've been in the administration so long, dealt with them. And this was, you know, the first time that we were even allowed to go to the market Mm -hmm. to check out other Options. Why was it the first time? Because you just had had such a long contract before? Right, exactly. We went back to NBC because they're the best. I mean, we worked with them forever. We know them, and uh, their offer was the best, and it took nine months. (laughs) Not the most fun process. (laughs) No, but in the end, there was a happy ending. Yes. Another thing that I don't know if it started under your watch, but it certainly 
became a bigger thing under your watch is the dispersal of HFPA money to important causes, whether film preservation in partnership with Martin Scorsese and others, or defending the First Amendment and freedom of the press. Can you talk about, you do an annual banquet, which this year's edition is coming up on Wednesday, at which you give away a lot of money. Can you talk about where that money comes from and why you guys do that? Well, we get our money from the license fees Mm -hmm. from the show. We are nonprofit. We are required to give away a certain percentage, but we give tons more. Mm-hmm. I think to date we have already given $33 million wow. over the past 25 years. Wow. And um, generally we increase it by a certain percentage. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be about $7 million yeah. wow. this year. What we do is at the grants banquet, we give money to, on an annual basis to all the grantees. We have about... Oh my God, I think over 80 now. And um, they all apply online. We have a grants officer, Sandra Cuneo, who helps us. She makes recommendations. The trustees and the members vote on her recommendations. So at the grants banquet, we give the majority of the money away to big and small institutions, the Film Foundation, Mm -hmm. Kids in the Spotlight, for film restoration, for scholarships, for underrepresented students. Mm -hmm. No, it's a very nice evening. And what also happens, which is cool for everybody, is a lot of the people who want to be remembered at the end of the year for potentially Golden Globe nominations become available to help present these. (laughs) So it's always a pretty star-studded evening. And I want to add one more. We gave a grant to Racy's, you know, the group that reunites kids with their parents at the border Uh, last year. Yes. So That's that's something I'm proud of. Yes. And then we do the journalism awards or At least I've been doing them during my term. I don't know if that'll be continued, but the million dollar grantees at the Golden Globes, because that is the biggest platform that we have. Tell us what those are. I mean, is this, this is the Press Freedom Grants? That's right. And what are those, what is that? In my first year, we gave a million dollars each to the Committee to Protect Journalists. And they're they're the group that keeps tabs on journalists overseas and combat zones Mm -hmm. in hazardous situations. Those who are incarcerated, tortured, Mm -hmm. they have people on the ground to help them. You know, they advocate, they they go to uh, governments and try and change laws and try and get the journalists out. They keep a record of how many journalists are killed. 11 this year, 54 last year, 47 the year before. Some over 1,300, I think, since the 2000s. Yeah, terrible. So, and then, and then we gave a grant to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists mm-hmm. at the same time, another million dollars. And they're the ones who did the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, you know, the offshore accounts that people in power have hidden. Yes. And they did the investigation, a worldwide one. That's an amazing thing for any of them to get a million dollars out of the blue. Very nice. Very deserving. And then this year, we gave another million dollars each to uh, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. They are the ones who do amicus briefs Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of their focus is on journalism in the U.S., but also abroad. And to Inside Climate News, which is an organization that only focuses on climate change. That's great. That's great. I think you have a couple other events also coming up, maybe even in partnership with The Hollywood Reporter. I think The Hollywood Reporter is doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. But 
we are planning a press freedom week in collaboration with the, the LA Times. Mm -hmm. And we're going to bring our million dollar grantees to LA and then have three specific events. Mm -hmm. One will be a panel discussion with all four of them about press freedom and elections, ah. because that's pretty timely, much a timely yeah. Um, yeah. issue. The second one will be minority representation in the media. And I believe Lester Holt is going to moderate wow. that. Wow. And the third one is going to be on the danger that journalists face when they report in combat zones yes. and wars and, you know. That's great. And I am hoping, yeah. I don't even know if I should say this, that maybe Amal Clooney can speak. Oh, that would be amazing. It will be, but we are still trying to see if our schedule yeah. is um, open. And then on a bit of a lighter note, come September, not that long from now, I believe we'll be co-hosting a party at the Toronto That's International right. Film Festival. Yeah. What's that event? What's that party? Well, it's our annual party that mm -hmm. we always have in Toronto. And this time, The Hollywood Reporter is our new partner in that. And uh, We look forward to it. Yeah. Well, I wondered, one of the decisions that I think is largely made by the president, I think, is the host... Or is that a board decision? It is actually an NBC and HFPA and DCP collaboration. Collaboration. So how did we end up this most recent Golden Globes with Sandra Oh and Andy Samberg? And then the one before that was Seth Meyers? I adore Seth. Yeah. I mean, I watch his program all the time. Yeah. And when NBC suggested him, I was, I was totally on board. Yeah. Sandra, <laughs> I love Sandra too. And it was, I mean, that speech, I was sitting in the, at the Globes with her parents at the next table uh, and, and I could see how moved they were. Because she won on the night she co-hosted. That was pretty and, cool. and also that speech, you yeah, know, about... Importance of diversity. And, that's right. Yeah. The DeMille is ours. We are the ones who pick the DeMille, the president and the board. And now the Burnett. And the Burnett, yes. exactly. I heard through the grapevine there was a little bit of drama this year because of a strike at the Beverly Hilton. Oh, I can talk about that. It gave me a heart attack and, you know, uh, a few more gray hairs. Because we should say sure. the Beverly Hilton's where you guys have done the Golden Globes probably since the beginning, right? Yes. Well, there were a bunch of uh, Southern California hotels that went on strike. Mm -hmm. And the Beverly Hilton was one of them. So, yeah, it was very tense. This happened in December. And you and guys we are in were, January. Yeah, I mean, it was in the papers that all yeah. these hotels were going on strike. So we were, you know, we kept being assured that they would settle it. But you had to have a plan B in, in uh, place because what if things didn't work out, right. you know? And so we actually started making plans to use a soundstage at Universal Studios. And how would case. that have worked? Like, is that you would have... Would that have accommodated more or fewer people? They are so genius. They can replicate the... Um, the whole room. The ballroom. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, this is what they do. That's, yeah, they make that's movies. So. <laughs> well, so yeah. that didn't happen. It didn't happen, fortunately. But could it... If, if the Golden Globes were... I mean, you, the thing is, you guys are a much hotter ticket in some ways than even the Oscars because the international ballroom of the Beverly Hilton is not big. How many people do you fit in there for the Globes each I year? I think it's about... 1300 I want to say give or take. So, you know, there's there's so many people who would love to attend. I think the space is also we should note different because at the Globes it's a round table with dinner and drinks and everything which is part of what makes it a lot of fun unlike at the Oscars where it's sort of just rows of seats without food and drinks. 
if you guys were to feel that you've outgrown the Beverly Hilton ballroom, where do you think you would go? And is that a realistic possibility? You are right. We are outgrowing the space. And there is talk of building something. And we are in very preliminary talks. I'm not sure. I want to say more. Yes, sure. But hopefully. But that's still down the road. Sure. As you look back now, you know, I happen to be with you at the Karlovy Vari International Film Festival a few weeks ago on the night when your term officially came to an end. I will leave it to you to characterize how that feels to have made it through two years of a lot of work, a lot of stress, probably a lot of fun, but just what was what does it feel like to now come out the other side? It was just relief, <laughs> primarily that I didn't break the globes, <laughs> that I didn't break the HFPA. Right. I mean, you worry about these things when you take the job, right? right? And it's a little bit scary to, you know, be the leader of a group that does yeah. an important international show. But we got through it unscathed. I'm not so sure about me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did a great job, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Scott. And now for my interview with Lulu Wong. Caution, you may want to hold off on going any further until you've seen The Farewell. Lulu, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? In this case, I will say prior to moving to America, what was their profession? Professions. Prior to moving to America, my father was a diplomat for China, but in the Soviet Union. My mother was a writer and cultural critic and the editor of the Beijing Literary Gazette. Nice. And so you were born in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And the way I, I've tried to read and listen to everything that's out there, it seems like in 1989, shortly after Tiananmen Square, your family decided time to go and went to Miami. What do you remember about your very few years there in China and then arriving in America? Well, we moved to the States because my father wanted to study and he applied to get his PhD and got into University of Miami. So that's why we left. It wasn't necessarily connected to Tiananmen Square. But I just remember my parents being very young, intellectual people, you know. They would have friends over at night and dinners, and I had a lot of uncles and aunties. And I would, you know, visit my grandparents in the summertime. And I had barely started school. I think I had started first grade for two weeks before we left. And so was it upsetting to be sort of pulled out of your life and and go, or were you just kind of at that point along for the ride? Along for the ride. (laughs) I mean, I think when you're a kid, you don't think about all of the ramifications. You know, everybody's been trying to to go, and this is the thing that you're working towards. And so if everybody's celebrating, you celebrate, right? right? You go, this is great. And also my father had gotten his visa first, and he left right around Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to just go because he had his visa in case something happened and he right. couldn't get out and but at that time my mother and I didn't have our visa yet and I remember it being really terrifying for my mother because she didn't know if we'd ever see him again right. if he might you know be there and we wouldn't get our visas yeah. we couldn't join him with the political situation you know who knows right it was a really terrifying time and then when we finally got our visas which was just 
I don't know the details of the story, but my mother will talk about all of the different steps and how difficult it was and how lucky we were. Like it took all of these different relationships and coincidences for us to know the right people who could make the phone call and who, you know, and we, I remember being in line for hours and hours when we were waiting for the results. And, you know, it's like, you're just watching everyone's face. The person before you comes out and you just see like their face falls or if they smile and then we got ours, but then the person after us didn't get there and yeah yeah whole drama for reasons that will be obvious to anyone who has seen the farewell i have to ask you know why it sounds like from even back then were you particularly close to your grandmother on your father's side who you call your nai yeah i remember being always very close to her i was close with both of my grandmothers but i think particularly nai because my whole family says I take after her, you know, I'm similarly vertically challenged. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Um, So my mother used to always warn me. She's like, you know, you got to be careful what you eat because, you know, look at Nai Nai. She's kind of fat. So not kind of, I mean, she would not say kind of, she would just say, she's like, you have to be careful because you're going to turn out to be like her. And it just, for, for better or worse, right, I, I take after her. And um, from Nai Nai's side herself, she would say, you take after me, you're very strong. Mm-hmm. I went joined the army when I was 14. You know, you're a small girl, but you can do anything in the world and you can go anywhere you want. And I think that I just always uh, saw myself in her as a reflection. So, you know, we're talking in this country right now a lot about the immigrant experience because of all the stuff with the border and the president and all of that. I wonder if your experience coming to America in 1989 was different. And, you know, I'm hoping you can say it was smoother than people 30 years later are finding. Were people welcoming? People being like neighbors and things like that? or You take it how you want, uh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely smoother. I think I felt like we were welcomed with open arms, Mm -hmm. you know. We had friends from churches who really welcomed us. We had people who gave us a lot of donations. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there was just such a openness to a family pursuing the American dream. I guess it seems like, though, the biggest change was that from having essentially been you know, the, I guess you would call like the intellectual class of within China. Now your parents had to sort of start from scratch here, right? I mean, it was like menial jobs. Was that tough? Yeah. Yeah. It was tough because we were staying in a student dorm that was really meant for one person, you know, and we had the whole family. And so that was really tough, just being in this tiny dorm with the whole family and not having anything. And my father, the number always changes every time he tells the story <laughs> of how much money exactly he had in his pocket. I feel like over the years, that number's gotten like smaller. <laughs> I was like, I thought it was $200. Now you're saying it's 35 It's like, well, it's 200 if you include the stipend, but I didn't technically have it in my pocket. I had to go to the student union and get it okay whatever like very little amount of money that he had you know my mother didn't speak english and we had a really tough time because we missed our connecting flight and we uh i think it was san francisco no it was los angeles i think it was los angeles that we were connecting and we missed the flight to miami and because we didn't speak the language 
didn't know, there was no cell phones. Yeah. We didn't know how to contact anyone. We didn't know how to use the pay phones. And so uh, my mother's just crying and she's got, you know, me as a little kid. And this man came and helped us and he saw her crying and, and she's, you know, pointing at the phone and he was like, show me the phone number and he put quarters in. You know, I think that she felt like, wow, what a great country that somebody would take time out of their day and just help us not knowing anything about us. Interestingly, I just have to say, I guess there's a little bit of a parallel we'll come to on the night of your New York premiere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, but anyway, it's interesting because, you know, for people who had, you know, your parents had been doing, it seems like things they really were passionate about in China, they come here, they can't do it anymore. Now they have a child who, it seems like first music, it sounds like you're a terrific piano player, that was the big thing, but at a certain point when you say... I want to pursue my passion being filmmaking, there was a little skepticism. Is that just being practical? Like people born in America have the same thing. The parents say, why did we send you to college so you can go and become a philosopher or whatever? How did your desire to pursue filmmaking emerge? And then how was that received at home? I think they had a hard time with it, but it was not specifically that it was filmmaking. The thing my mother always said when I was growing up was, um, she's like, you can't be a dilettante, you know? She's like, yes, you're great at whatever you decide to do, like whether it was piano, and I took art classes for a while. In college, I taught swing dancing. So, you know, I just loved things and loved arts and loved to express myself, and I would learn things pretty quickly. And my mom said, but, you know, that's like putting together a meal. I just realized, like, everything's a food analogy, right? <laughs> like, it's, you're putting together a meal. You have a lot of uh, side dishes, but what's your main course? Mm-hmm. What's your bread and butter? How are you going to support yourself? And are you ever going to really truly master something and dedicate yourself to that? And so I think when I decided to do filmmaking, it was after I started taking... I took two electives my senior year of college. And so to my mom, I was like, where is this coming from? And this you was know? at Boston University? Boston College. Boston College, Very, okay. di- very yes, different. Yes, yes. <laughs> it seems, though, that your your majors when you were there were not anything to do with film, literature, and, and music. So you're saying it was only senior year that you first even contemplated that this might be something you want to do? Yeah, because I went to BC and got a general liberal arts education, right? And really just was enjoying my independence, Mm -hmm. I think, more than anything, because it was my first time away from home, and I was living on campus, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. Yes, I wrote. Yes, I played the piano. Do I want to be isolated in a room writing novels? Do I want to be home practicing piano for seven hours a day to be on the road and perform classical music by, you know, a bunch of dead European dead men? European. <laughs> um, it just, you know, it never really clicked for me. I was like, yeah, I love music, but I don't necessarily know if uh, this is my life's calling and can I really commit myself to that. Up to that point, it, it just... It had been a very serious part of your life, though, right? Piano? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I went to a conservatory high school that you have to audition for. It's like a magnet art school, and you're basically training to go to Juilliard or whatever. And I had these amazing piano teachers, and uh, my piano teacher said, you could be one of the best pianists in the world if you just dedicated yourself to it, you know? And she said, um, you practice an hour a day, and 
you're amazing, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. You've, you know, the best pianist practice seven hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can barely do an hour. <laughs> you want me to spend my life doing yeah. seven? That's crazy. And uh, she always felt like I was wasting my quote-unquote gift. You know, and she would tell that to my parents, and then my parents would be like, well, we did put all this time and energy mm-hmm. into it. And I was like, but can you really see me as a pianist? Like, And that's not an easy living to make either, right? How many people a- make a living as a pianist? Exactly, exactly. So as that was maybe fading as a interest or passion, that is simultaneous to when you have these electives that make you say, "Wait a second, this could be this could be something." Yeah, it was senior year, and I had finished all of my core classes, and and so I thought, well, I'm just gonna do something for me. I'm gonna like look into what are the classes I've always wanted to take. This might be my one shot to actually do this because once you graduate, like when are you gonna get to just learn something for fun? I took a photography class and that really ignited it first. Just, I love being in the dark room. I loved images and, and seeing them, you know, appear before my eyes. And then I took film 101 where we shot on Super 8. And that's what really clinched it for me, I think, because it was like, oh, I love images, but I'm a storyteller. I've always written and I get to use music. And if I put one song, it'll completely shift the tone of the film in one direction or or another. And so it was a way that I brought together my writing and my music. And so at the time you graduate in 2005, what did you tell your parents the game plan was? Well, I actually had applied to law school and I got in and I got offered a full ride. Where was this going to be? Loyola. Okay. And so my parents were ecstatic because I took the LSATs. I did well and I got in and they were like, great, you know, this is this is the next step. And I just thought I can't do this like you know I said first of all I think I only want to be a lawyer because of Allie McBeal <laughs> well that's also isn't that why you went to Boston College <laughs> it's also why I went to Boston College because I was like Boston seems like a great city if it's good enough for David, David E. Kelly to set all of his shows there and I love David E. Right. Kelly um so literally only applied to schools in Boston <laughs> like didn't apply to Stanford didn't right. apply to any just Boston that's funny yeah, and so I'm, I said, I'm pretty sure that, you know, law school and being an actual lawyer isn't going to be like Allie McBeal. yeah. Yeah, so um, I turned it down and got a job at a coffee shop mm-hmm. in Boston. Boston, so, okay. Uh, Beacon Hill. Yep. And um, was living the millennial dream mm-hmm. of, um, you know, minimum wage, but I'm free. Right. You know, I have my entire future ahead of me. I have these big dreams. And, you know, I'll just do whatever it takes to make ends meet until I figure it out. And also, I met this guy who ended up being the EP of a documentary. But at the time I met him, he is this uh, old Panamanian guy. I met him at the bar in Alston. Uh, it's It was his bar. And we started talking, and I told him that I you know, wanted to be a filmmaker. And he told me that he owned a resort in Panama and he was very angry because there were these uh, shrimping boats that were shrimping the Gulf, overfishing and Mm -hmm. killing all of the fish and ruining uh, the local economy. And so I said, well, what if I come and make a documentary? And I pitched this idea to him. And so I went out to Panama for a couple months with my best friend and editor 
And so we did that. And, you know, so I had these projects. And then later I got commissioned to do uh, another documentary in Nepal. Wow. So I knew that in between working at a coffee shop, I would be able to go off and shoot this thing and come back and edit while I worked at the coffee shop. Why two years after graduating did you make the the big move across the country to here in LA? What was that's a big that is a big thing for an East Coaster. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's what you do, right? If you want to be a filmmaker, you either move to LA or to New York. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that I would want to live in New York, but not in Los Angeles. And I said, well, I'm young, so if I'm going to do L.A. at any point, I'm going to do it while I'm young, you know, and get it over with. And then that way I'll move to New York. But if I move to New York, I'm never going to want to leave and I'll just never go to L.A. <laughs> so that was my rationale yeah, at the time. I don't know if it makes it sense. Makes sense. Yeah, 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 it does. <laughs> so I, you know, moved to L.A., didn't know a single person and just uh, my dad, my poor father, he was the one who came out with me. To move you in. To move me in yeah. and saw the state of the house I was living in and just <laughs> didn't want to get on a plane. Which neighborhood? It was at Fairfax and Pico. Oh, yeah. 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 And it was just like hot and, you know, had a lot of roommates. My roommates had a lot of cats. <laughs> Like a lot of cats, like a lot of cats. Right. Not particularly well cared for cats, you know, either. So everything smelled like pot, and he was just very concerned about yeah. this life choice. It seems like you did what a lot of newcomers to LA who want to dip their toe into the business do, which is essentially sounds like be a PA. Although it was was it for a specific producer? Yeah, I was never a PA. I did a temp job at Imagine Entertainment. That was my first job, but I was only there for like a couple weeks. And when that was running out, I looked in Hollywood Reporter (laughs) back when there was still uh, production listings. Yeah, and I I thought to myself, okay, what is a skill that I have that no one else has Mm -hmm. so that I could like cold call and just pitch myself Mm -hmm. and maybe stand out from everybody else who was doing this. Um, So when I saw Rush Hour 3, I thought, well, I speak Chinese, so I'm just going to call and say, hey, I speak Mandarin. Do you need a Mandarin speaker? And that's what I did. And the person on the phone was like, where did you come from? Oh, my God, we have this actress coming from China, from Beijing in two weeks. And we were just looking for someone. And randomly you call. Can you start right away? And so that was my first job. And then how do you end up on the set of Pineapple Express? This is David Gordon Green's movie that... People will remember very funny. Yeah. I just transitioned because, you know, somebody I knew said, oh, the rush hour is ending. And I said, you know, I'm looking for a job. And she said, oh, you know, I heard there's a producer hiring over here. And so I interviewed and I got the job working for a producer. That, from what I've been able to tell, was maybe not a fun experience the way it all went down, but it was a valuable one. So what happened that you seem like such a nice person? How could somebody fire you from the set of a movie and yet... That's what happened. I should have been fired. Really, I deserved it. I'm a terrible assistant. You know, I, I don't know how to make coffee. I guess I could have learned, but uh, I didn't know how to make coffee. And, you know, really, it was um, just felt very limiting to me because right. you're spending a lot of time on set. And so you're doing a lot of menial tasks. And to some degree, I think that I just yearned 
to learn and to be more involved. And on a studio film, there's a hierarchy and you're not allowed to be more involved. And I kept, you know, trying to use my lunch hours or, you know, after work to just, how do I learn? Can I just be a fly on the wall here or there? And I wasn't allowed to. And I, it just started to feel like every step I took was a wrong step. And I was constantly walking on eggshells because it was against my nature to limit myself mm -hmm. and to not talk to people and to feel like, okay, you're not allowed to talk to these people, but these people you are allowed to talk to. And that's not how I work. I can't distinguish, like draw those boundaries, you and know? And David though, it doesn't sound like he was the one that was saying, you know, don't talk to me. Oh gosh, no, he's not like that at all. And that's, um, I think, partly what got me into yes. trouble. Because that's that an interesting story. Will you tell it? I mean, just like, <laughs> what? so he was being encouraging. Yeah, he asked to see my short film. He said, yeah. uh, my assistant, Joshua Losey, who's now mm -hmm. a director as well, he said, Josh saw your short film. Can I see it? Which short was this? It was uh, this short that I had done called Can Can. Mm -hmm based on a short story by Arturo Vavante. Mm -hmm. um, it, but, you know, it was really the, a film that I did right out, out of college. Mm -hmm. It was essentially a student film. Yeah. And he said, you know, I heard it's good. I'd love to see it. And so I came the next day, brought the DVD, and he was at Video Village. Nothing was happening. Nobody it was, you know, break. But mm -hmm. I walked up to Video Village and handed him the DVD, and then I got in trouble. <laughs> I said, you can't, what are you doing? I said, well, he asked for it. Yeah. I said, well, you can't just walk up to Video Village and so let's say there's a listener who doesn't know what Video Village is. Can you explain what, what the... Video Village is where the director and the producer and sometimes the star will hang out to watch the monitor. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, as a director, I understand, right? Like, you, you have to have a sense of respect around Video Village. And uh, so I will put the blame on myself <laughs> to, that I, I didn't understand and ha maybe have those boundaries. But at the same time... People were just hanging out yeah, and chatting, yeah. you know, and I walked up and said, oh, you asked for something, I'm going to give right, it to you. Right. And so those are the things that I guess I didn't understand. I didn't have a sense of hierarchy. I didn't have a sense of like my quote unquote place. Right. And so weirdly, though, getting bounced might have been one of the best things that ever happened, right? Because even it seems like it wasn't the last interaction you had with David and it sort of set up the next chapter of you actually having some control over your own output in life, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say that was probably, you know, on this very long journey of trying to figure out how to do things on my own terms, that was probably the first step to say, you know, no one here is going to give me that opportunity to go right or direct. You know, in a way, you're an assistant. People see you that way mm -hmm. and you're kind of limited by that perception mm -hmm. and also you just don't have enough time you mm -hmm. can't when do you have time when you're on set for 16 hours yeah. so after I was fired I had coffee with David and he was like oh please like I've been fired everybody's been <laughs> fired you know it's a badge of honor and years later, actually, I ran into Judd Apatow, and he mm -hmm. said the same thing, because mm -hmm. I was about to go make my first feature, and he said, congratulations, you know, being fired is completely a badge of honor. Right. Yeah, so I talked to David, and David said, you know, this is the best thing, because I didn't become a director by working on sets. I worked, you know, a bunch of day jobs mm -hmm. and saved up that money and took that money and made George Washington. Yeah. Well, I think the day jobs, though, themselves are interesting because obviously you were following the advice, like, make some money so that you can do what you're passionate about. But the way you were making money was not unrelated to your passion, right? This whole, you basically, was it a niche 
of a business that even existed before you were doing it? This whole my videography your business. videography and specific videography, not just like you want a bar mitzvah video. It was like very specific kind. I've done a few of those too. <laughs> I've done a few bar mitzvah right. videos in my time. Yeah, my boyfriend at the time was a partner at a law firm, and he showed me some videos, documentaries. He he said, "You're you're a filmmaker. Come come check this out. Tell mm-hmm. me if this is good." And I watched it, and I was like it's fine. What do you pay for this? Mm-hmm. And he told me, and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and uh, he, 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 and he, huh? Somebody was oh, making good money. Exactly. Yeah. Very good money yeah. for mediocre work, yeah, you yeah, know, like yeah. not very much production value and um, basically just talking heads, mm-hmm. you know? And I said, you know, this is what I do. Like I've just did this documentary in Nepal and mm-hmm. in, in Panama. And like, I don't, I know I don't know the legal business, but like, give me a shot. Like yeah. you're, how is it different? You're just telling a story, right, right? right? And I can learn. So he said, okay, you know, why don't you do this one? And uh, I'm going to pay you a lot less. And this is my oh boyfriend, my too, by the way. He's like, I'm going to pay you half. I was like, great. <laughs> pay me whatever you want. Just right. give me a shot to try it out. Right. And so we did this case with uh, three boys. Their father was severely injured, and they're from South Boston. So they're like, you know, tough guys, and they don't want to cry. They don't want to show any kind of emotion. Like, everything's fine. I'm, I'm cool. I'm tough. I'm a guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I started talking to them and just asking them about how it felt to not be able to hang out with their dad. What are some of the things that they used to do? And, and they just all broke down. And... I cut it together and, you know, showed it, and that's how it all started. And these videos would be used in mediation or court cases or whatever to sort of show the impact of whatever had happened. Yeah, exactly. And I ended up doing, in L.A., a lot of my clients uh, were working in class action, medical Mm -hmm. malpractice, a lot of brain injury cases. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times it's injuries that you can't, see, you know, you can't tell what that the impact of it is on the person's life. Right. It seems like on top of this, one of your other things that you were doing, and and you had a lot of balls in the air, but one of them was working with a woman who has just been appointed to the Board of Governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Janet Yang, who seems to, it's sort of like the Zelig or the Forrest Gump of the Asian American film community because she was involved with Joy Luck Club 25, 26 years ago and right through a lot of the stuff in the present. So how did you come to work for her and and why was that, you know, just being under the same roof as some other people there important? Well, Jan is really like the godmother of the Asian American community in Hollywood. She has mentored so many young aspiring writers, young aspiring executives, you know, gotten them jobs at production companies or studios or agencies. So I had applied to an ad. She was looking for an assistant or a part-time intern assistant. And, you know, we met and she read some of my writing and just said, you know, I think you're overqualified for this job. I would not feel right having you just doing whatever in my office. Like, mm-hmm. you, you should be writing. And so she said, you know, how about this? Why don't you read scripts for me? And in exchange, I'll read whatever you write. Mm-hmm. And so for a summer, that's what I did. I just uh, did coverage for her, basically. Yeah. And that was how I met the financier of my first feature. And, and so it was, yeah, I mean, that person, Bernadette Berge, is that the right way to... Bjergi. She's yeah. Swedish. Yeah, uh, Swiss. Swiss, Swiss. I always 
like to just point out these sort of steps because I think a lot of the listeners are at a point where they're they're just wondering how do you get from A to Z and it's sometimes these just you know you do all these little things that lead to a big thing. Yeah, and what's interesting is I remember at the time thinking I really need a producer. I really need a producing partner because I recognize how important producers are to directors and writers as well. And so people said, well, go to networking events, go to Hollywood networking. And I hate networking. I am, you know, it's not my thing. I didn't want to be at these networking events trying to, it's like dating, you know, and where you're just like looking for something, you're never going to find it. And so lo and behold, I find the perfect partner going to Ikea. You know what (laughs) I mean? Janet needed something or or something, right? No, no. Bernadette had just uh, moved to LA and she, at the time, didn't have a car yet, but she needed some things for her apartment Mm -hmm. from Ikea. And I happen to love Ikea. (laughs) And so I said, oh oh my God, a day trip to Ikea is my dream (laughs) vacation, right? It's like the perfect way to spend a Saturday. And so we drove to Ikea and ate Swedish meatballs and just hung out all day and talked about dreams. And by the time we came back, she said, you know, I've been thinking about whether I should stay or finish up this, because she was also interning for Janet, Mm -hmm. and that's how we met. But she said, you know, finish this internship and go back, or if I should get a visa and stay. I was like, you came all the way out here to pursue your dream, stay. Mm -hmm. And so she said, great, do you want to be my partner? And sure. And so we started a company and started off by doing short videos. We Mm -hmm. did this uh, behind-the-scenes series of videos sponsored by State Farm for OK Go, the band. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple other things I'm trying to remember now. For the World Expo, we did a video, but just all these, like, odd little videos here and there mm-hmm. for the first year. And then after the first year, she said, you know, I really came out here to make movies. I think that's what you want to do, too. Let's let's not wait for someone else to give us the go-ahead. Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, how much does that cost? Like, you know, I'm going to see if I can find the money. What what do you think? A hundred, hundred fifty thousand to do your first feature. Yes. And she said, you know, I know that I want to make a romantic comedy. I want it to be a screwball romantic comedy, a la you know Roman Holiday, Mm -hmm. His Girl Friday, that kind of Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder, you know, charming and intelligent and thoughtful. So I said, great, I'll pitch you some ideas and let's do it. And um, yeah, let's say a hundred and fifty thousand. That was how it kind of started off, but of course it snowballed. I pitched the idea for Posthumous, and as I wrote it, and the whole thing started developing, and we started casting, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the end, came out in 2014 with some very good young actors, Britt Marling and Jack Houston, very well received. I guess that was, do you think, what caused the film Independent to give you that Chaz and Roger Ebert fellowship that you received in 2014, or was that unrelated? Um, maybe. It was, you know, I had done that, and I had also just done a short film. I made my short film touch after I did Posthumous yes. because I wanted to see if I could... Well, first of all, I just wanted any excuse to be on set and to make something. And I wanted to also see if, with less money, I could do something a little bit riskier in subject matter, and that was a little bit different in tone, and and also just to see if I could still tell a good story with less money. And and so the money, though, to make Touch the short, which was basically about a Chinese immigrant who's falsely accused, right, of being inappropriate with a kid, that money to make it was what came with the fellowship? 
No. So the Film Independent Project involve they greenlight a few short films from the class every year. Okay. But you have to pitch your script, and then you have to pitch to direct it. And then once it's greenlit, they give you, at the time, it was like, you know, a few thousand dollars mm-hmm. plus a bunch of in-kind donations. Mm-hmm. And so between that money and the in-kind donations and then we raised some money, right. we were able to make the film. And when you're making a short film like that, having already made a feature, is there a thought always in the back of your head that this is sort of a prototype for a expanded version of this at some point? Or you were totally focused on just it as a short? Just a short. Because... I think that I just wanted to make something that was going to be a challenge for myself. I wasn't necessarily thinking how I can turn this into a feature and what story to tell that could be turned into a feature. It was really that, you know, Film Independent gives you a theme every year, and so you have to pitch stories around this theme. And at the time, it was Sophie's Choice. And it made me think about the story of, like, you know, what do you do when you're in this situation between the law... And, yeah, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. In the midst, I think of probably more so posthumous than touch is when the events that inspired the farewell are actually happening in your life, right? Yes. So, like, 2013, I believe, is when, without giving away more plot than necessary of the farewell, basically you find out that Nainai has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just wonder from that point forward, how much of what we see in the film, is it pretty much exactly what happened? Or were there things in terms of your own like situation? All right, my family is not going to tell her that it's better to spare her. But like stuff like you end up in the film joining your family because they didn't feel that originally it didn't make sense for you to go. Were things like that really going on where it was like, you weren't going to go, and then you go, and stuff like that? Yeah, but at the time, I was in Berlin, not New York, because mm-hmm. um, I was in post-production on my feature. Mm-hmm. And I believe I actually showed up first in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, I got there the day before my parents, and I'm now, like, constantly mixing fiction <laughs> and uh, the reality. Right. But if you listen to This American Life, that yes. follows more to the facts of what happened. And my parents' flight ended up getting delayed and so then everybody was worried that they were not going to make it in time for the wedding and my grandmother said see I was smart I made sure that we didn't make the wedding the very next day that we would have one day break so now we're covered thank god I did that you know how long had it been since you'd actually seen your grandmother uh maybe a few years Mm -hmm. I can't remember now because I'll go back every few summers but like in the film you guys it's like I don't know if it would be daily but Certainly, it seemed like weekly communication on the phone. Yeah, we, we talked, you know. But in some ways, you, at the time, I think I probably took her for granted. It was mm-hmm. just like, oh, Nana's there. You know, right. I call her when I need to, and I'll pick up when she calls. Right. But you don't think about her not being there suddenly one day. So you mentioned This American Life, and basically 2016 now, three years after the beginning of this whole soap opera of what you had to go through with your family. How did you wind up telling this story to the public for the first time? For the first time was on an episode of This American Life. 
And that was because I had tried to make the film for a couple years and nobody wanted to make it. And I gave up. I said, you know, maybe it maybe it's not a film, you know, and so maybe one day I'll write it as a story and it'll get published. And so I set it off to the side and it was during my festival tour for Touch that Neil Drumming from This American Life approached me and said, actually, he said, I, I love your short film. I wonder if that's a story that we could bring to This American Life. And so he tried to pitch the story of Touch to This American Life. And then he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, people are excited about it, but do you have other stories? So that's when I pitched this. And what had been the objections that you had heard from, it sounds like both Americans and Chinese potential partners when you wanted to make it as a film prior to that. What were they what were they saying about why they weren't interested? Well, they both sides wanted to know if it's an American film or a Chinese film. And then they had their own preconceived notions of what either one meant. You know, being an American film, it would be have to be cast a certain way. Certainly couldn't have everybody speaking Chinese and having it subtitled. Mm-hmm. But then on the Chinese side they said, you know, as a Chinese film, the Chinese audience is not going to resonate with Billy's Western perspective. And so... Billy is basically your surrogate. Yes. Yeah. I like to call her a conduit, conduit. you know, for, for the audience, right? She's the one who shares my perspective mm-hmm. and um, takes the audience through this journey. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Chinese audiences would find it funny maybe if she brought... Uh, her white boyfriend from America who doesn't speak Chinese and doesn't understand the culture. And so this boyfriend would be the butt of the joke because he doesn't understand Chinese culture and he's being forced through this wedding for the sake of Nai Nai. But then in the end, she's got to, you know, break up with him and choose the Chinese guy. She's Maybe she falls in love with the local guy and she's got to choose the Chinese right, guy, right, right, for the Chinese audience. <laughs> and maybe even, like, that guy is probably the main character because really he's got the right perspective because he's Chinese. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I don't know that guy's perspective because right. I'm not Chinese, right. you know, not not in that way. and right. I'm, I'm too westernized and I don't know how to tell that story. Basically, it was like, it sounds like there was a desire to make it broad in the way that your first feature had been maybe a little more of a broad comedy, and that was not what you were interested in doing. Right. You know, tonally, on on, on both Americans and Chinese, saw it as like a big fat Chinese wedding kind of situation. <laughs> that was, that was not, of, not of interest to you. No, yeah. but then, but you know, it's hard because people go, well, then what's the comp? And it's very difficult right. to give a comp for something that doesn't exist, but also it's necessary to tell new stories. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of people will appreciate having a new new comp now, I'm sure, because, uh, yeah, I mean, they're really, what, is there anything that you referenced preparing this that was, like, did you draw upon any other existing films? Yeah. Force majeure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is very, because even after the film was greenlit by Big Beach, uh, when I named Force Majeure as my comp, they were like, really? <laughs> Should we just revive this basically with the ski, act, what do you call it, an avalanche that the yes. family doesn't react to well? Well, not the family, the, 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 the man, right? <laughs> the, man. The, the husband, the right. father, right. he... Um, I think he doesn't respond intuitively the way that he thinks that he would. Right. 
And it's very much a family thriller the way that The Farewell is, where it's a it's a seemingly small incident, right? Or problem in a way, or an intimate problem, mm-hmm. right? But of epic proportions yeah. because yeah. it's it's questioning for him his own masculinity, his own identity as a husband mm-hmm. and a father. If you're not going to protect the women and children first, over your own life, what kind of man are you? Right. Um, so, and he can't admit that to himself. And so that film is all about the unspoken. And I love that Ruben Oslin calls it a family thriller. Yes. Aside from being a very excellent movie that's being now, I think, made into, for better or worse, a English language American film. The other thing that people get a kick out of with that movie, I don't know if you ever have seen this, but... The Man Cry? Yes. Is that what you're going <laughs> to say? Was, when he was not... Nominated. He yeah. was watching. <laughs> Everyone thought he'd be nominated for the Oscar. And then it, I don't know. Do you think it was real or, or put on? Like, there's some debate. I feel like it was a show, right? It was. Was there a debate? There, yeah. Some people think he. Uh, it might have been just a real reaction. But <laughs> anyway, I thought that was interesting. That that was one of your references, and also that you were saying, like, generally speaking, the genres are not rom coms or anything like that that you were looking at, but that horror. And I think thrillers generally would be. Why structurally would those be a better parallel? Because the film is very subjective. It's told through the perspective of Billy. And, you know, internally, she doesn't feel that it's a comedy. You know, there are certainly funny things that happen and situational comedy, but there's a general sense of dread and melancholy. And I wanted to make that present in every scene the way that a horror film makes you feel the presence of a monster a ghost or you know even if you don't see it yeah lurking there so the turning point though in terms of getting the industry excited from from having no interest to suddenly being very interested was that 2016 april 2016 episode of this american life it sounds though like when you went home at the end of that day when it actually aired that was at the same time the low point for you as a filmmaker. You've talked about that you were ready to kind of walk away from it all. So how did that turn around? Yeah. I mean, you know, after the film premiered at Sundance, my manager said to me, remember when you almost quit filmmaking to go work for This American Life? (laughs) 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 To go into public radio? Is it just you'd love the experience? I love the experience. And it was a very emotional experience because... I was so deep in the process, you know, I wasn't thinking about where is this going to lead me and what's the ultimate goal here. It was just such a pure storytelling experience. And I loved working with everybody there. Everybody had the same goal that even if you had all of these people and in Hollywood, you would say too many cooks in the kitchen, but you know, at This American Life, everybody had the same ultimate goal. And if we disagreed with something, people would ask questions and would say, well, what are you trying to say? How do we help you to say this better? As opposed to how do we put our own ideas of how this should go? Because it's a journalistic show. It's fact-based. They can't, right? They can't go, let's change this and tell it from this perspective. Like, it, it, you're the only person who has the authority mm-hmm. and they know that. And so... If it's not working, all they can do is try to get you to dig deeper, interview more people, you know, and try to get at the truth of it. And so coming from that investigative place and a place of curiosity was just 
so satisfying and beautiful and pure. And, you know, the night that it aired, I started crying at the restaurant that I was, I was with my friend. And we've been going to this sushi restaurant in East Village since college. And so we went there to celebrate. And he's like, why are you crying? And I said, because I think I picked the wrong industry. I've been so one-track mind with being in being a filmmaker and being in this industry and trying to like reach some goal that I've in a way forgotten the root of why I wanted to be a storyteller in the first place and also like this industry doesn't have space for someone like me I'm never going to get to tell those stories I'm always going to have to compromise and I just think right now more than ever it's important for us to um, tell things that are pure and have the right values behind them and not purely for entertainment. Not that I'm like, opposed to entertainment, but I do think that you can do both mm-hmm. and and touch people and get people to better understand other people and the world around them. And he said, well, if you do work for This American Life, you'll be in New York and we can hang out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so he was happy. But I mean, it's amazing. I knew it's a popular show, but I didn't, you know, the reach here was apparent pretty quickly and in a few different ways because and maybe you can just bring them all together but basically it led to producers and it also led to in a less immediate way your star right I think she had also before you ever approached her Aquafina she says she heard the episode so just it seems like once that happened and after you got through that emotional night like it actually came together relatively quickly very quickly yeah I mean 24 to 48 hours after the episode first aired is when I started getting phone calls and emails. And Chris Weitz came on, I think, the week that the show aired. We had lunch right away, and and I said, sure, let's do it. And then Big Beach came on the week after to finance. And I was also able to, you know, just give people a sense of the tone. While I was casting, while we were bringing on other partners, we would send the script and attached with it was a a link to the episode. And I think that was really, really important that people hear the story. It's a a fully made product, Mm -hmm. right? And it's, there's music and it's beautifully produced by Neil. And instead of trying to assess a script and how is it going to be presented, they can actually just listen to it and feel something. Yeah. It's like a short film, essentially. The difference now, though, was that as opposed to people who had been, you know, talking to you about working together before, it's not trying to shoehorn it into some pre-existing model. It was like we're willing to work with with what you're asking for, right? Right. I said, well, if you respond to this uh, to this this American Life story, even after this American Life, I met with some producers who were like, "Oh my gosh, we love this story. We love the episode, but here's how we should change it." And so I really wanted to work with the people that said, we love this. Now, how do we translate this Mm -hmm. for the screen? How do we translate it and not how do we change it to Hollywoodize it to make it, quote unquote, more accessible? You go, you know, it's very accessible. Four million people heard it within the first like week and a half or something. Right. So for me, that was really the challenge was how do we translate this tone to screen and how do we make it more visual without making it broader without feeling the need to make it quote-unquote more accessible and in a weird way you know people that are just hearing about it today and they go and see it aquafina they that may people may assume that that she was 
essentially like the when her signing on or something made this possible because now they know who she is. But at the time, I think she had just finished shooting Crazy Rich Asians. That had certainly not come out. I don't. If anything, people knew her for music, which was yeah. totally very different. Exactly. Um, and other than her, I think the rest of the cast was, for the very most part, cast out of China, right? Yeah. Tai Ma was the only one we cast in the States, other than Aquafina. But yeah, I mean, I, I knew her from her music video, from my vag. And also Green <laughs> Tea with Margaret Cho, of course. Yes. But, you know, I thought the rapper from Queens, that's who my producers are suggesting could play me, or this version of Did me. Did you say, like, don't even, was it tempting to be like, don't even waste my time with, with a audition or whatever? Yeah, I was a little confused by the idea. I thought, you know, are you guys suggesting this because she's an influencer, you know, and we're the and I, I was nervous because a lot of people had suggested, you know, projects based around influencers mm. and I just said I don't know if they can act. If they can't act, it's it's not that's not for me, you know? Right. Like I want to work with an actor. It's not just about like what their social media outreach right. is. And so I, that's what I was worried about, but of course I, I did meet with her, and as soon as we met, I you know I knew that Nora Lum is not Aquafina. Aquafina is like persona, persona, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, like as a viewer going in, having only seen her do more broad stuff or music, I I wondered, you know, is that what's this about? And but I think the thing that it sounds like sold you was also the thing that's really moved a lot of people is just that there's actually. A very expressive, subtle actor there as well. You know, people just maybe hadn't seen that. You saw it for the first time in the in an audition tape. Yeah, she sent in a self taped audition, and I saw it right away because you know after I we we met for coffee too. She talked to me about how she lost her mother when she was four, and she was raised by her Chinese grandmother, and feelings of displacement. When she went back to Beijing, she studied abroad there like I did. So, you know, I think I always think it's so powerful when comedians transition to drama because, you know, I think comedians are some of the darkest people. They carry a lot. I mean, they they use comedy as a way to survive, as a way to get through it. Yeah. So now it comes time to shoot this movie. It was not a a big budget. I don't know if you guys have disclosed that. Did you? I don't know if we've disclosed. I'm sure yeah. it's okay. Let's just avoid the. Those, okay. It's not my place to. But name just numbers. to point out, yeah. you know, the people can read between the lines. Twenty four days in China and then two days in New York is not a very expansive shoot. It was low budget, yeah. And so when you're in China, I guess it was important to you to, you know, sort of be authentic and to the to the original experience, which meant shooting it in and around where actual Nai Nai lived and spoiler alert, continued to and continues to live in and so and yet had not been so she had she had she had survived this diagnosis longer than had been expected, but had not been aware that you guys had withheld the information, if I'm getting this right. And so you're shooting it with her there. Well, we, we, yeah, I mean, I told her I was making a movie in China, and she said, if you're going to make a movie in China, you have to shoot it in Changchun. Otherwise, you know, why, why would you go elsewhere? Like, here we can help you, we can be around, we can see you. And so I really didn't have a good response to that. So, and she's right, you know, why not shoot it 
where we can be around family and it's where things actually happened. So we did shoot in her city and ultimately ended up shooting in her neighborhood because her neighborhood is so specific and uh, just felt, yeah, just felt very authentic to the experience. And even other things that I know is your, your grandfather's tombstone is the one that we see that powerful scene in, the wedding banquet hall, just a lot of stuff like that that maybe it was important to you. The viewer wouldn't know one way or the other, but it just you, you, it rang, made it ring truer for you guys? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily that I actually told my DP I don't want to stay true to the facts. That's not important to mm-hmm. me. But both in the script as well as when we were location scouting because and casting, you know, it, we're not making a documentary. Yeah. And so in some ways to explore the truth of the story, you have to find things that are credible and that are also visually interesting and cinematic because nobody's going to watch a movie and go, oh, is that the real location? Is that the real aunt or great aunt? You know, so it was just a coincidence that we ended up at my grandfather's actual grave in the real wedding banquet because we scouted every single cemetery in Changchun and nearby and we scouted like you know, 20 something banquet halls and ended up choosing what we thought was the most visually interesting for the film. If people are looking for just fun facts, who from the real story would we actually see in this film? Is it (laughs) a few people? It's just my great aunt. Little Nai Nai plays Little Nai Nai. uh, She plays herself in the movie. And her dog, Ellen, also plays herself (laughs) in the movie. Because Ellen Ellen sings. And I wanted to put that in the film. But she only sings for Little Nai Nai. She won't sing for anyone else. And so... If I had cast an actor to play <laughs> Little Night Eye, that's the, Ellen, the deal. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then does somebody go by in a chair at one point? Oh, yeah. Night Night makes a cameo. Yeah, my actual, real grandma. Yes. For her, it must have been a pretty proud thing to see. I mean, it's a little bit of a outside-the-box thing for, I would imagine, most Chinese grandmothers there to have a granddaughter making a American movie in their backyard. What was was it very moving for her to just see that you at work doing what you do? Yeah, it was beyond. I mean, I don't think that she could even comprehend it, like process all of it for, you know, because she her friends were around, her neighbors, everybody saw that she was the grandma of the director of this film that was being shot in their neighborhood and uh, everybody came out of uh, out of their the stores and houses to to watch us and so yeah my grandmother was beyond proud and i think she just and and in some ways that makes me feel a lot better about the lie because if she saw the big picture if she saw that this lie enabled us to tell the story and enabled me to have a career and have a film out in the world that people are responding to and all of these things and also enabled her to spend time with me and to see me do what I do like all of that I think that she would think of course yeah, the you greater know, good yeah the greater good now just in the, the the final few things here are how this movie has been received by the world starting in January at Sundance at a Sundance that I think had more female directed films than any other up to that point, and many of them, led by yours, got sold and nice deals. And just what was it like to, A, have it programmed in the U.S. dramatic competition where they can categorize it however they want, from what I understand, but then B, to, you know, sort of 
yes, you'd unveiled the story to the world on This American Life, but this is a very different thing to end. I imagine your family was there and just the whole experience of coming to the end of the of that step of the equation. It was really surreal. My parents saw it for the first time at Sundance. My brother saw it for the first time at Sundance, who, by the way, I wrote out of the movie. So I didn't know how he was <laughs> going to feel. Did he get a heads up? <laughs> about, yeah, he knew because he, he wasn't at this uh, wedding. Right, right. He was working at the time. Yeah, it was just a really magical, really surreal experience to have my family see the film for the first time with an audience and hearing their reactions and then, you know, be sort of swept up in this very ideal Sundance experience. You know, it's like everything that you have heard of and that you dream of and that I think a lot of filmmakers even getting into Sundance don't necessarily get to experience, you know, the late night bidding wars and all of it. Um, Well, you read my mind here because I just have to know and I think it's a fascinating chapter of the story of this movie that there were a lot of people that were responding in a major way to your movie one of them was a24 which has done some great movies distributed some great movies and another from what i understand was netflix and so for somebody's first widely distributed movie essentially or or in this scale why take six million dollars less from what i think i read so eight million rather than 14 from A24 versus streaming. I mean, I know, and maybe I wondered if, when I heard that, if it was like a, even like a Janet advising thing, because I believe Crazy Rich Asians, which I think she had consulted on, made the same decision that we'd rather be in theaters than streaming. So what what for you tipped the scales? Because that's a big, that's a big question. I think it was just a gut feeling. You know, when I first started pitching The Farewell, it took people who could see what it could be. They, they you know, it, it takes vision, right, to make something that hasn't existed before that you don't have a comp for. And I think similarly with distributors, it takes somebody with vision for how it could be presented to the world, how it could be seen, not how it is seen, right? Because, you know, on paper, it's like a difficult film. It's, uh, you know, 80% in Mandarin and subtitled. It's 100% Asian cast. It's a. It's about a family. Nobody's in it is rich. It's not glamorous. How do we sell this? And A24, I could just tell by the way they talked about it that they had a vision for it. They saw it the way that I saw it, even though this there is no comp, that they saw it as an American film. They saw it as a universal story about family and grief. But they also saw all of the joy in it and how it was going to be a great summer film that would bring families together to the theater to and all different generations who maybe normally don't go to the movie together because they don't want to watch the same types of films, that this was the film that was going to bring all these generations together to watch a film. So the theatrical experience was sort of central to this whole thing, right? Yeah, and and because it, it, it's not just because like big screen versus right. small screen, it's about the conversations that are you know, initiated because you're building towards a theatrical release. Right. The movie's been rolling out since when did, when was the opening uh, with with the champagne uh, Q&A. When was that? <laughs> with Rebecca. Yeah, with Rebecca Ford. Gosh, what was that? July 12th. Okay, so yeah. we're talking just a few weeks. What has it been like to see, you know, yeah, it's one thing for Sundance to go nuts where it's all of us film geeks, but to now have the the 
real world out there embracing it to the to the degree that it's beating out the Avengers and Spider-Man and stuff for this highest per theater out. Like, that's a big deal. That means people are really showing up for it. And so I wonder, as the second to last question, just how gratifying that must be. You know, it's like hard to comprehend on that scale. I feel like it's a concept, right? Like these numbers and and as, as a human being, it's like, how how can you, it's intangible, right? What's tangible for me is when I see a photo of somebody with their grandmother at the theater, when my best friend says, you know, I took my 99-year-old Italian grandmother who has not been to a movie in the theaters for 70 years. This is her first movie in a theater in 70 years. That's crazy. And I took her and we watched it together and she sobbed through the whole thing. And, you know, that to me is tangible. I love seeing people's photos with their own family members and their own stories that they and they feel seen. That's really beautiful to me. You know, all the other stuff is like I can't control. If, if I listen to the good, I also have to listen <laughs> right. to the bad. And I always and I always have my mother's head in my voice because people keep asking her if she's proud. And she says, you know. I'm I'm her mother. I'm I'm different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world just wants to say go higher, go higher. How high can you go? As your mother, the higher you go, the more scared I am of you for you to fall. And so I kind of constantly hear that because she kind of goes, "All right, I think that's that's enough, right? <laughs> like you don't want to go any higher cuz you might fall." Well, that's interesting. And I guess finally, the takeaways from this, because it's a, as you say, there's no comps. This industry is not known for, especially in recent years, for being particularly adventurous. I mean, everything seems to be a remake or a sequel or an adaptation of something that we already know about. And so to have an original movie, personal, specific, do well, the takeaway for you as the filmmaker, the takeaway that you hope the industry has. And then I guess, of course, I you know has has Nine Eye herself seen it. Nine Eye herself has not seen the film. We'll see how we're going to deal with that because yeah. we have Chinese distribution now. Oh, cool! So the movie's going to be out in China, not not for quite a while. So you know, cross that bridge, yeah. Well, as my family always says, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure the bridge is here. But I think my takeaway for me as a filmmaker is to you know, always try to find the the personal angle into it and and specificity, but also it's not about plot. It's not it 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 really says to me, you know, that people don't have to go to the movie to see plot. It's about connection. You know, and the question that I asked myself for most of the farewell was not about plot was like, you know, what are they going to do and how are they going to, who's going to chase who or do they tell her, do they not tell her? That's not really what it's about. You know, what drove me to tell the story was how do you say goodbye to somebody that you love, whether they know or don't know, you know, it's impossible to say goodbye. So what do you do? And I think that's the way I want to always approach films is that no matter how big of a concept it is, what's the question that it's exploring? And maybe it's not important to find the answer, but that pe- people are clearly hungry for content that asks the question that they themselves are asking, or maybe they themselves don't even know that they should be asking, right? But it, it satisfies this um, 
desire just to explore, to talk about things, talk about the difficult things. And that's what art does. So I think that the industry just needs to ask more questions. You know, if you're interested in a, a filmmaker, a voice, instead of taking that voice and figuring out how do I put it through this system, ask them questions. Say, you know, what are the things that what are the things that you want to say? What are the stories that you want to tell that nobody's letting you tell? Well, congratulations on, on the film. It's terrific, and I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.